a Singular Discoveries podcast. It was just after sunset on an August evening in 1718, and something was approaching through the twilight. The sloop, the Francis, had come to anchor in Delaware Bay on the northeastern seaboard of America. The single-masted Francis and its small crew would wait out the ebb tide before completing their journey from Antigua to Boston. The sloop's first mate, James Killing, peered over the murky water. I perceived something like a canoe. They came nearer, I said, here's a canoe coming. I wish they'd be friends. The busy trading routes that brought goods and people to the colonies were patrolled by sea robbers, and the sloop was only lightly armed. Every trader was fearful of attack from pirates. I hailed them and asked from whence they came. He could make out five or so figures within the canoe. One of them replied that they were fellow traders out of Pennsylvania. Killing welcomed them and ordered his crew to throw down rope rigging for the visitors to climb. It was a terrible mistake. As soon as they came aboard, they clapped their hands to their cutlasses, and I said, We are taken! From Singular Discoveries, this is Sins Died in Blood, The Lost Pirate of Blackbeard's Golden Age, Part 1. Act 1. We are taken. The pirates were a disparate bunch, in loose-fitting overshirts and ankle-length breeches, some of them barefooted, with knotted scarves and woollen caps on their heads. The men and their clothes were weathered and scarred from years spent at sea and at battle. Their language was as rough as their appearance. Killing said they cursed and swore at his frightened crew. Along with their cutlasses, they carried pistols and muskets, raiding pikes and belted knives. Out of sight in the thickening blackness was a pirate ship, with guns and grenades and scores of other men. The crew of the Francis could offer no resistance. The Francis's captain, Peter Manwaring, came forward to appeal to the pirates. Gentlemen, he said, I hope... As you are Englishmen, you'll be merciful, for you see we have nothing to defend ourselves. The majority of pirates at this time were English, Scottish or Welsh, many of them cast-offs from the British Royal Navy, abandoned and left to find alternative means of survival following the end of the War of the Spanish Succession. They drifted into piracy out of necessity or were forced to turn after their own merchant vessels were captured. In any case, the call for mercy was unnecessary. The pirates were single-mindedly focused on taking their prize and had no reason to kill cooperative crew members. Manwaring was loaded into the canoe and taken away. The remaining crew were ordered to bring a light. Then, the pirates began to explore the sloop's cargo. The first thing they began with was the pineapples, which they cut with their cutlasses. They asked me if I would not come along and eat with them. I told them I had but little stomach to eat. They asked me why I looked so melancholy. I told them I looked as well as I could. They asked me what liquor I had on board. I told them some rum and sugar, so they made bowls of punch and then sung a song or two. By the morning, the pirate's schooner had drawn alongside the Francis. This bigger two-masted sailboat flew a bloody flag, bearing a death's head, a skull without, in this case, crossbones. The schooner was a fast and nimble craft, able to outrun and overpower merchant vessels and evade and escape from enemy warships. It was fitted with ten guns, 
and crewed by 70 men. More pirates came aboard the Francis, and its cargo of rum, molasses, sugar and cotton was transferred to the schooner. Gold coins, a silver watch and 25 shillings in Boston money were also taken. Two of the pirates in some way neglected their duties. An order came that they were to be tied to the mast and flogged. James Killing was told if he did not fully cooperate, he would suffer the same punishment. As the pirates prepared to leave, they ordered Killing to go with them. This type of press ganging, or turning, was common, and the pirates expected cooperative prisoners to willingly join them. Aside from the obvious benefits of self-survival, pirates were better paid than merchant seamen. Pirate crews were democratic organisations, led by their captains, but with a right to vote on important issues and a right to equal shares in stolen loot. A single raid could earn a pirate the equivalent of 20 years' wages for a merchant seaman. A pirate's life was governed by their ship's Articles of Agreement or Pirate Code. New recruits were required to sign the articles, but Killing refused. I told them I was not fit for their turn. Neither was my inclination that way. At this point, the pirate captain himself came to Killing and presented him with a stark choice. Either he would go with them and become a sea robber of the kind he dreaded and despised, or he would be marooned on a deserted island to face a slow and lonely death. So a weary killing set sail in the Francis, following the schooner he now knew to be called the Revenge. When the Francis fell behind, the pirate captain hailed killing from the deck of the Revenge with a speaking trumpet and informed him that if the sloop did not keep up, it would be sunk by a volley of gunfire. So then we proceeded on our voyage till we came to Cape Fear. Among the pirates was a man named Edward Robinson from Newcastle-upon-Tyne in the northeast of England. Witnesses said Robinson bore arms freely and voluntarily and was consenting and assisting in the taking of the Francis as he was during other pirate raids. His captain was one of the most feared pirates on the seas, Steed Bonnet, known as the Gentleman Pirate for his elegant outfits. Robinson had previously sailed under the most notorious pirate captain of them all, Edward Thatch, better known as Blackbeard. Robinson, the Newcastle pirate, was 4,000 miles from home, living a life of lawless abandon that struck terror into the hearts of all he encountered. But Edward Robinson's life as a pirate would soon be at an end. Act 2. Body in the Tyne For a brief period in the early 1700s, pirates ruled the ocean waves, and it really was a brief period. According to its narrowest definition, the golden age of piracy lasted less than a decade, from around 1713 to about 1722. But the golden age pirates and tales of their deeds have endured and continue to fascinate 300 years on. Benjamin Hornigold and Charles Vane, Calico Jack Rackham and Bartholomew Roberts, the female pirates Anne Bonny and Mary Reed, and, most notably, Steed Bonnet and Blackbeard sailed under black flags, plundering Spanish gold and pieces of eight by day and splurging them on prostitutes and alcohol by night. Yo-ho-ho ho and a bottle of rum. Or at least that's how the story goes. The so-called Golden Age has been romanticised and hyperbolized over the past 300 years to the extent that fact and fiction have become frustratingly entwined. 
The modern image of pirates has been bent into shape by novels and movies, TV shows and video games, and even a theme park ride. From Treasure Island and Peter Pan, via Pirates of the Caribbean, and Our Flag Means Death, pirates continue to fascinate and enthrall. The pirates themselves have become semi-mythical characters, even though the previously named are all verifiably real. Historical documents record many of their deeds, but mysteries continue to surround even the most well-known of these salty anti-heroes. Edward Robinson isn't well-known, although he was a Golden Age contemporary of Bonnet, Blackbeard and the others. This is Paul Brown, author of Sins Died in Blood. I first heard his name as a kid. I'd devoured Treasure Island and dreamed of sailing with Long John Silver to find Captain Flint's buried loot. To discover there was a real pirate from my hometown of Newcastle was thrilling, despite the fact that very little seems to be known about him. There are tales, most of which are fanciful and difficult to verify, but his true story is remarkable, as I found when I began to separate the peg legs from the parrots on shoulders in search of the Newcastle pirate. A lot has changed in the 300 years since Edward Robinson left Newcastle, and the River Tyne no longer represents the city's lifeblood. Some buildings from Robinson's time do survive here. Really, Newcastle has an incredible collection of historic features, from the remains of the ancient Roman Hadrian's Wall and the medieval Castle Keep, to these four- and five-hundred-year-old quayside buildings. Some of the surviving buildings contain pubs which still have the low-beamed ceilings and stone-walled snugs and passageways that 18th-century drinkers would have encountered. According to stories I'm told by local historians, the pirate Edward Robinson was born in one of these pubs and later committed a murder in another. According to one story, Robinson stabbed his victim in the neck and threw his body in the Tyne. I can find plenty of references from the time to these pubs, but I can't find any record of the murder which apparently occurred in the White Hart Inn. The implication is that Robinson fled Newcastle after the murder and subsequently became a pirate. But if Edward Robinson was a fleeing murderer, he doesn't seem to have left any evidence behind. The image of Robinson and other pirates as felons absconding to sea to escape justice may fit well with the popular narrative. But the truth is, the majority of pirates were ordinary merchant or navy seamen who turned to a life of piracy out of necessity. The Golden Age of Piracy began in earnest in 1713, after the end of the War of the Spanish Succession, or Queen Anne's War, when Britain abandoned much of its navy, leaving up to 30,000 sailors stranded on either side of the Atlantic, many of them in the Americas and the Caribbean. Stuck in foreign ports without jobs or the means to get home, some of them turned to piracy due to a lack of any other options. After Queen Anne died in 1714, and the British throne went to George I of the German House of Hanover, rather than to James Stuart, the old pretender. Many exiled Brits rebelled and used piracy to wage war on their home country. Keen to find something more concrete that might indicate why Edward Robinson became a pirate, Paul tries the maritime records held at the Tyne and Weir archives, a reference library located in Newcastle's Discovery Museum. I found a reference in shipping indexes to an Edward Robinson working as a mariner on a ship out of Newcastle called the Concord. 
Records show that the Concorde ran grain between Newcastle and London in the 1680s and transported settlers from Europe to America in the 1690s. Edward Robinson was recorded as the ship's master, effectively the captain of the ship. There are then only sporadic mentions, the privateer Concorde in 1706, and then in 1711 a Captain Robinson is recorded as having battled with French privateers. It is likely a coincidence that the most famous ship of the Golden Age of Piracy was a French vessel known as La Concorde, which was thought to have been taken from the British by French privateers and refitted as a slave ship. But it is possible that La Concorde was the Concorde and that its former captain Edward Robinson remained aboard as a prisoner or a press-ganged crew member as the ship crossed the Atlantic carrying a cargo of enslaved Africans to the Caribbean. In November 1717, as it neared its destination, La Concorde was captured by pirates. 14 crew members and 85 enslaved Africans were forced into piracy. If Robinson was among the forced crew, this would have been his introduction to life under a black flag. La Concorde was renamed the Queen Anne's Revenge by its new captain, a fearsome figure the world would soon come to know as Blackbeard. The search for a clear origin for Edward Robinson is made difficult by his fairly common name. There certainly was at least one mariner operating out of Newcastle named Edward Robinson, but he may not be the man who became a pirate. Whether murderer or merchant, the catalogues, lists and indexes of the Tyne and Weir archives provide no further information. At this point, it would be possible to believe that the pirate Edward Robinson is every bit as fictional as Captain Jack Sparrow, who, incidentally, did drink in Newcastle's quayside pubs. Or at least the actor Johnny Depp did. He was spotted there in 2022. But the pirate Edward Robinson isn't fictional, and we know this because there is documentary evidence for his existence. Much of what we popularly know about the golden age of piracy comes from one source, a general history of the robberies and murders of the most notorious pirates, published in London in 1724, while swashes were still being buckled. The book's author is named as Captain Charles Johnson, although that may be a pseudonym. Scholarly claims that Captain Johnson was actually Daniel Defoe, the author of Robinson Crusoe, have been dismissed in recent years, although several modern editions of general history are erroneously credited to Defoe. A more likely candidate may be the London playwright Charles Johnson, who had previously written The Successful Pirate, about Henry Avery, one of the pirates profiled in general history. What's particularly remarkable about general history is that it was written just as the golden age of piracy was coming to an end and compiled, it seems, from first-hand accounts. This is Captain Johnson, writing in the third person. Those facts which he himself was not an eyewitness of, he had from the authentic relations of the persons concerned in taking the pirates, as well as from the mouths of the pirates themselves after they were taken, and he conceives no man can produce better testimonies to support the credit of any history. I've got in front of me a second edition of General History of Pirates, which was published just a few months after the first. Pirates, by the way, is spelled here with a P-Y instead of a P-I. 
It's a handsome book. It's 400 plus yellowing pages containing vivid tales complemented by a handful of intricately engraved illustrations of a cutlass-wielding Bartholomew Roberts, a pistol-bearing Anne Bonny, and, of course, the fearsomely hairy Blackbeard. And it delivers a solid lead. Page 103 contains a list of men arraigned and tried for the crime of piracy in Charlestown, now Charleston, South Carolina, in late 1718. The men are the crew of the Revenge, captained by Major Steed Bonnet. This is the pirate ship and the captain that took the Francis on that August evening in 1718. The third pirate named on the list is Edward Robinson, late of Newcastle-upon-Tyne. The references to Bonnet and Charleston lead me to another document, published in 1719, titled The Trials of Major Steed Bonnet and Other Pirates. Listed on the nameplate among the other pirates is Edward Robinson. Printed for the London bookseller Benjamin Cowes, who operated out of the Rose and Crown Tavern in St Paul's Churchyard, The Trials of Major Steed Bonnet and Other Pirates is a 50-page pamphlet containing a detailed account of an extraordinary trial conducted in Charleston during October and November of 1718. It records Robinson's swashbuckling crimes, presents his brief personal testimony and reveals his eventual brutal fate. Act 3. The Great Devil The first recorded sighting of the pirate Edward Robinson occurred in early April, 1718, four months before the taking of the Francis. The witness was David Herriot, master of the sloop The Adventure, which was sailing from Jamaica to the Bay of Honduras. Around 30 miles from their destination, the crew of The Adventure spotted a large vessel approaching, accompanied by two sloops. Initially, Herriot believed the vessel to be another merchant ship. However, as it came closer, he became nervous and ordered a swift change of course. The large ship came about and fired a shot across the adventure. Then one of the sloops came alongside with a black flag hoisted. The sloop was the Revenge, belonging to Major Steed Bonnet. Herriot was taken on board the Revenge, while the pirates took the adventure. Harriet later listed the names of the pirates he encountered. The first-named pirate was Edward Robinson, who Harriet said was the ship's gunner. The Revenge had ten guns, heavy cannons that could fire cast iron round shots over a half-mile distances. The gunner was responsible for these guns, which were wheeled back on carriages for reloading using wooden rammerheads, and for the ammunition and gunpowder, which had to be kept dry and safe from combustion. Although the Revenge was owned by Steed Bonnet, It was not really under his command. Bonnet had been injured in an ill-advised attack on a Spanish man-of-war that left him confined to his cabin. By the time the Revenge encountered David Herriot's adventure, Bonnet's ship had been incorporated into a pirate flotilla and his authority had been superseded by the captain of the flotilla's largest ship. Herriot must have realised who that captain was before the crew named him. Mariners in the area referred to the large pirate ship as the Great Devil. The ship's given name was the Queen Anne's Revenge, another rancorous title referencing the rebellious intentions of the pirates. Its captain was Edward Thatch, 
better known as Blackbeard. Although Blackbeard is an infamous historical figure, his origins are as uncertain as those of Edward Robinson. Contemporary sources, including testimony from his crew, give Blackbeard's name as Thatch, although Captain Johnson and several other subsequent writers call him Teach. Johnson said Blackbeard was from Bristol, England. Captain Teach, alias Blackbeard, was a Bristol man born but had sailed some time out of Jamaica in privateers. Yet though he had often distinguished himself for his uncommon boldness and personal courage, he was never raised to any command till he went a-pirating, which I think was in the latter part of the year 1716. Thatch initially sailed under the pirate captain Benjamin Hornigold before the opportunity arose to take his own command during an encounter with the incapacitated Steed Bonnet. Thatch was based at Nassau on the Bahamian island of New Providence, a pirate-controlled ramshackle haven of dirty deals and debauchery. Although the Bahamas were officially British, New Providence had been virtually abandoned due to French and Spanish attacks during the war. Nassau's secluded harbour near the American trade routes made it an ideal base for a colony of around a thousand real pirates of the Caribbean. When Steed Bonnet limped into Nassau aboard the stricken Revenge after the beating from the Man of War in September 1717, Thatch took control of the injured captain's sloop and crew. Sailing out of Nassau and into the Caribbean trading routes, Captain Thatch began the reign of terror for which he would be remembered for centuries to come. One of the first prizes taken by Thatch was La Concorde, in an audacious raid off the island of Martinique. Could La Concorde have been Edward Robinson's The Concorde? In any case, Thatch renamed his new flagship the Queen Anne's Revenge and fitted it with 40 guns. With such firepower at his disposal, Thatch began to attack bigger and well-armed merchant ships. One was the Great Allen, which was plundered and then set on fire. When Thatch encountered a British warship, the Scarborough, the pirate captain's superior firepower drove the Royal Navy into retreat. After the merchant ship, the Margaret, was raided in December 1717, its British captain, Henry Bostock, described Thatch as a tall, spare man with a very black beard, which he wore very long. Newspapers circulated that description, and a legend was born. So our hero assumed the cognomen of Blackbeard, from that large quantity of hair, which, like a frightful meteor, covered his whole face and frightened America more than any comet that has appeared there a long time. He wore a sling over his shoulder with three brace of pistols hanging in holsters like bandoliers and stuck lighted matches under his hat, which appearing on each side of his face, his eyes naturally looking fierce and wild, made him altogether such a figure that imagination cannot form an idea of a fury from hell to loom more frightful. Intimidation was a pirate's most useful weapon, and many ships were taken without a cutlass being drawn or a flintlock being fired. Fear alone was often enough to compel a crew to surrender. Blackbeard generated such a level of fear that he rarely needed to use violence. He terrified his prey and also scared his crew, compelling them to stay loyal. And the Commonwealth of Pirates, he who goes to the greatest lengths of wickedness, is looked upon with a kind of envy amongst them. David Herriot and his crew were forced to join Blackbeard, and the adventure became a pirate ship under the command of Blackbeard's quartermaster, Israel Hands. Sailing north, the pirates encountered a flotilla of ships, the largest of which was named the Protestant Caesar. 
According to Heriot, Blackbeard fired a gun and raised his black flag, causing the crew of the Protestant Caesar to abandon ship and flee to land. The pirates plundered the ship and then set it alight as a message to the ship's home port of Boston, a town that was known to hang pirates. Blackbeard continued north, with Edward Robinson on board, taking more ships, before arriving in Charleston in May 1718. In an audacious move, Blackbeard blockaded the town's harbour, seizing several ships, including the London-bound Crowley, and taking scores of prisoners. Five pirates were sent ashore with a ransom demand for a chest of medicines, most likely because the pirates were suffering from venereal disease. The pirates very insolently made their demands, threatening that if they did not send immediately the chest of medicines, they would murder all their prisoners, send up their heads to the governor, and set the ships they had taken on fire. Edward Robinson asked Blackbeard if he could be one of those sent ashore with the ransom demand. Blackbeard refused, and the aggrieved Robinson was left with the prisoners. The pirates who did go ashore made sure to enjoy themselves. Although the chest of medicines was quickly provided, the pirates were too busy drinking in Charleston's taverns to take it back to their captain. After five days, during which no ships were allowed in or out of Charleston, Blackbeard moved his flotilla into the harbour and the people of the town abandoned themselves to despair. Eventually, the drunken pirates resurfaced and returned to the Queen Anne's revenge with the ransom chest. Blackbeard released the prisoners and ended the blockade, but not before he had taken 1,500 pounds of gold and silver from the captured ships. It was to be Blackbeard's last great act of piracy. After leaving Charleston, Blackbeard's flotilla headed north for around 150 miles until it reached Topsail Inlet, now known as Beaufort Inlet, near the town of Beaufort, North Carolina. On entering the inlet, the Queen Anne's Revenge struck a bar and suffered catastrophic damage. The mainsail mast was broken and its timber hull was smashed. As the ship floundered and began to take on water, the crew hurried to rescue small arms, money and other items of value. Then the 300-ton, 40-gun pirate ship sank to the ocean floor. The Great Devil was lost. In the next episode of Singular Discoveries, the story of Edward Robinson continues. Piracy is a robbery committed upon the sea, and a pirate is a sea thief. When Captain Thatch left us, it was on a maroon island. So I followed in the footsteps of Edward Robinson. You caused your terror to be on all that haunt the sea. Your sins were dyed in blood. To receive new episodes for free, just follow Singular Discoveries on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to binge listen the entire season, right now, including the next episode, plus an exclusive bonus episode, just go to singulardiscoveries.com. Sins Died in Blood was written and produced by Paul Brown, based on his ebook of the same name. You can find more of his writing at stuffbypaulbrown.com. singulardiscoveries.com.